When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Canadian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Phil Henderson, the host of the channel, and today I'll be talking with A.J. Withers. They are the author of Fight to Win, Inside Poor People's Organizing, published in 2021 by Fernwood Publishing. A.J. Withers, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I wonder to start, AJ, if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to do this work. Um, So I'm currently the Ruth Wynn Woodward Junior Chair in Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at Simon Fraser University. Still a mouthful that I'm getting used to. And um, I'm a longtime community organizer. I worked with a group called the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty for about 20 years. It's based in Toronto. And um, so through that work, I did a lot of community-based research and um, also was really critical of academia, not really realizing that I was doing scholarship all along and wrote a book, uh, a scholarly book without an undergraduate degree. And then... um, kind of realized that as a poor disabled person, the only route out of off of social assistance for myself was to go to grad school and ended up uh, as an academic. And um, then uh, began doing my research with the group of people that I'd organized with for a really long time. And that's sort of how I've ended up writing this book. And um, sort of merging my activism and my scholarship. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, as you alluded to, a lot of this book, in fact, almost all of it, focuses on work that you did in community with a group called the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, or OCAP. Could you explain to the listeners what OCAP is uh, and some of the work that you did with it? OCAP was founded in 1990. I joined about 10 years later, and it is an anti-poverty organization largely focused around housing and income. And it um, uses the idea that poor people like don't have resources, but have each other and have numbers. So works to really build power within poor communities and um, build resistance to 
mass mobilize. And um, one of the ways that it does that is with an organizing model that has sort of two strands. One is to meet people's immediate daily needs through something called direct action casework. And the other is through sort of long-term mass mobilizing to meet long-term needs, like in in the sort of medium term, raising social assistance rates and housing for all, and then ultimately the end of capitalism and colonialism. And um, we don't think that you can really um, ask people to come to those fights without addressing the fact that someone didn't get their welfare check this week. Um, So we work to sort of build, to merge those two things together and uh, use direct action in in both of those struggles to build that power in poor communities. And um, OCAP has sort of morphed over the years, depending on what the community needs and is sort of capable of of engaging with at any given time. Fantastic. Yeah, uh, I remember learning about OCAP uh, as a very young sort of, I guess, high school or undergraduate, and it always sort of stood out as one of the primary organized forces for social justice in the province of Ontario at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, which is borne out in the structure of your book, actually. So Fight to Win is built around five substantive chapters with an excellent intro and an conclusion. But each of these middle chapters focuses on a distinct campaign or mobilization project that OCAP has been engaged in. Could you walk the listeners through each of these campaigns in brief uh, and explore what this method of organizing the book allowed you to highlight, and then also perhaps what it might have obscured in terms of maybe the cross-campaign work that uh, OCAP represents? For sure. And and I guess just to come back to your previous question and to the what the title of the book means is that OCAP isn't a organization that registers its dissent. Um, we fight to win is what the organization fundamentally works to do. And within the left, there is often a uh, approach that is simply we just need to be counted. We just need to say we're upset about this, and that often comes from a point of. Uh, privilege and a liberalism that is a belief that the system is designed to work for people. And if we just say we don't agree with it, then something might change. And for marginalized folks, for oppressed people, it's pretty evident that the system doesn't work. And simply saying that there's a problem has not worked. And taking on struggles and just saying, oh, we're upset about this is, is not only a waste of time, it's fundamentally disempowering. And so we're only going to do things that we can win. Um, maybe we won't win them, but we're going to fight to win. We're going right. to fight in the short term, the medium and the long term. And so that's sort of the central thread running through the book. And each of the chapters talks about one of these struggles and each one has a really sort of 
kind of not straightforward victory, um, which is the nature of organizing today, I think, in, in the neoliberal world, where um, I guess the first chapter has the most clear-cut victory in which it's centered around a business improvement association hires a security guard to police a park and it's illegal and it's entirely to harass and displace unhoused people. And we got a phone call from one of those people to come and help. And so we um, started organizing to get rid of this security guard. And over a period of three weeks, we kind of built a campaign and the city from our perspective refused to really be involved. And over that time, we did a bunch of different things and then got rid of the security guard. And, and what um, the, some of the key things in that story are like how we work to center the, the person that called us, but also involve other people in the park. And for me, what was, what was really key is that for, as an activist, and I think all activists, we make sense of, of what's happened by being like, well, we did A, B, and C, and then we won. And so that's how we win. And using Freedom of Information Act requests, I, could, I mapped out the fact that we did A, B, we won, then we did C, and then we found out that we won. And, right. and we just really fundamentally changed how I understand the world. And so much of mm-hmm. what was happening behind the scenes was really that the city was working very hard to make us think that they weren't paying attention um, and they weren't involved when they were actually quite involved in what was going on. And um, our sense, our understanding as activists of how ruling relations, which is um, all of the, the, the people involved in and things and like policies and people involved in coordinating people's everyday activities, um, that ruling relations was actively working to create these sort of effective experiences that were really different than what was happening. And um, that really changed how I understand how the world works and how, how we should work to understand our activism, that there's active labor being done to um, to misdirect um, how, like when and how we think we're winning. Um, and so we can't necessarily understand what's effective. And so that was a really kind of key thing in me beginning to really question activist epistemic um, constructions and uh, and the book becomes sort of centered around 
epistemology in a way that I never would have imagined. Um, And me as an activist five years ago would have been deeply offended by. Um, And so the next chapter is really looking at this uh, emergency homelessness prevention benefit that helps folks get furniture or um, first and last month's rent and also through a call from someone who was trying to access this benefit, we learned that they were, we sort of slowly sort of pieced together that they are um, applying it really discriminatorily and that they are keeping that very secret. And so not only do are people not being able to access the policy, they're keeping the policy secret from people and they're keeping it secret from the workers that are applying the policy. All they can do is type in a, f- a formula and they don't know how the formula, they just type in the numbers and the, the computer spits out the formula. So we worked for quite a long time to try and figure out what was happening with this policy and initially through this case of Laura Bardot, um, who, who was a mom with two kids who had gotten, had to get rid of her stuff because of bed bugs and her kids were sleeping on the floor and, and needed furniture and the city just wouldn't give it to her. And the reason they wouldn't give it to her is because that even though she's on disability social assistance, they said that she had excess income, which is just preposterous. And so eventually we won that for her. And then through freedom of information requests, we also learned that they um, they really sort of bent the rules. And it seemed quite, it, I demonstrate that it's quite apparent that it's because of a response to our organizing that they um, were going out of their way to accommodate us and her in order to sort of mm-hmm. try and suppress the mm-hmm. public organizing and public critique that we had been able to mobilize. And, and if I could too, I just, mm-hmm. I thought that was such a remarkable part of the book that you make the distinction that they were willing to bend the rules, but not actually to restructure them. Yeah. Once you had put this concerted pressure to see that the problem wasn't incidental, but rather structural within how um, this emergency homeless uh, fund, homeless protection fund is actually built to have these kind of major gaps. They could bend, but they wouldn't actually restructure. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And it's something that I had seen over the years is that like people on social assistance, myself included, really experience this rigid, rigid bureaucracy. But then when mm-hmm. we do direct action casework, it becomes very flexible. Mm-hmm. And so I've experienced that. And then um, and then being able to sort of go into the, the, the back end through Freedom of Information Act and, and show how that happens was just really, really interesting. And even to the point that they're hiring a courier, which no one has ever heard of, to send someone a check. Like they've, no right. one's ever heard of this ever happening before, uh, just to make sure that she gets the money so that we stop. Um, and, but they, they become flexible in these situations in order to, I, 
think really suppress us um, mm-hmm. and to demobilize the organizing in order to stop us from being able to be successful in getting them to change the policy. And mm-hmm. ultimately in this um, instance, we were successful in, in getting them to change the policy in, in many instances. But later in the book, I map out with respect to the shelter campaign, all of the many, many different kinds of demobilizing strategies that they use and um, give them names. Many of them are already named by other scholars that I use and uh, map out. And then some I had to come up with names for. And for folks in in OCAP and other activists, that was one of the most useful parts of the book because um, being able to be like, I know what you're doing. (laughs) You're doing this specific tactic right now. And because I can identify and name it, I can respond to it appropriately was Mm -hmm. such a useful um, thing. And it's a really useful thing for me in organizing um, rather than just being like, this is this blanket response from ruling relations that we um there's just like a back and forth iterative relationship between activists and ruling relations that we all know about but there's actually so much nuance um that activists are constantly engaged with but the more detailed information that people have to be able to respond to like the better and and people in OCAP were certainly responding in strategically in many many ways but having clear concrete maps of identifying what is happening and and better more strategic ways of responding is is really important in being able to be more effective Mm um yeah so in the in the housing stabilization fund chapter, we we through this initial casework campaign, we end up going down some pretty intense like financial rabbit holes and find that the city has, through this discriminatory policy, had a massive surplus. And the campaign then starts demanding that this money go into the housing go back into the housing stabilization fund. And so while we were able to win change and which meant that more people were able to access the housing stabilization fund, we never got that money back that became surplus and went into the general city revenues. So there's these thousands of people who never got their furniture, never got their last month's rent were kept homeless in many instances because of city policy and there's there's no remedy for those people Um, but moving forward that policy is permanently changed in in really significant ways for folks Mm -hmm. Um, and then the next chapter and i look at housing first and that chapter coupled with the one after is examining the struggle for shelter beds in the city of Toronto. And um, 
the for 20 years uh, that I've been involved in homelessness organizing in the city, the city has claimed that there are enough shelter beds when we know that there aren't. And there's been this like longstanding epistemic fight. And um, we've continuously demanded more shelter beds and continuously the city has said, well, there's enough. So why do we need more? And each year more people die and each year it gets worse. And so by 2018, when the shelter campaign is largely centered around 2017, 2018, it at that point was unimaginably worse than it ever had been. And we build like a very strong campaign for shelters and um, our adversary in this is the city politicians and and city staff as of course we would expect as part of ruling relations but they're aligned with uh, a so-called advocacy organization the Toronto Alliance to end homelessness which um, is a a proponent of Housing First. And lots of people have heard about Housing First um, and it sounds great. And of course, everyone should have housing. It's a brilliant slogan. As a policy, what people hear is housing first um, and housing before or without having to get treatment or prove that you're housing ready. And of course, I support that. But there's a, a lot more to it that's like deeply, deeply problematic and in in some instances deadly. And one of the things is that it is a neoliberal policy implemented in the United States by George Bush and in Canada by Stephen Harper. And usually when I say that to people, that at least gets people open to the idea that maybe it's not what they've been told um, because because Housing First has been such an accept, a, a excellent like branding. It's like mm-hmm. probably been the most successful like branded policy of mm-hmm. any kind of social policy that people know of. Um, but what it is geared to do is to identify who's considered to be the most expensive homeless people and target those people. And um, they're the, they've been identified as quote unquote, chronically homeless. They're people that have been unhoused for six months or longer. And they are sort of recast as fundamentally pathological. There's something wrong with those people and that's why they're homeless. And I quote Adam Vaughn, who is the then parliamentary secretary and MPP for um, the minister in charge of, of housing. And he talks about how it's a medical issue and how um, 80% of unhoused people are unhoused one time and they can essentially be scared into pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, but 20% actually need support. And it's those people that need to be targeted. And his quotes are like quite um, revealing 
of how the state views people. And the federal government has mandated this policy down through every jurisdiction. And um, so there's, they cast homelessness as being an individual problem and a, a pathological one. And because it's no longer a social problem, the, the solutions are now individual and, and medicalized. And um, so this, the, the solution is supportive housing. But the idea is that we can remove these chronically homeless people from the shelter system and then cut the shelter system and fund supportive housing with those shelter beds. And that has been shown to not work. Um, you know, things keep getting worse, but also um, in a housing crisis in particular, when we have mass evictions and displacement and dispossession, it especially cannot work. And if if the problem really is an individual one, which of course it isn't, but even if you want to try and make that argument, then why is it that in places with housing crises, the the population of chronically homeless people is so much higher? Like it's obviously not an individual problem. But um, this, but one of the things that happens is when you make people be homeless for six months without supports is that you actually make people traumatized. Um, and it, and I, I think it's important to understand housing first as a policy of violence against women and gender diverse people that it actually inflicts violence on people, especially women and trans folks. So this organization, uh, the TIA, Toronto Alliance to End Homelessness um, is actively aligned with the city to and gets money from the city, is a supposed active active uh, advocacy organization. All of its members are um, have to sign an agreement that they support housing first, and many of its members are supportive housing providers or other agencies that have active control over unhoused people. And um, it would routinely go to the city and support whatever the city staff's proposal was and counter whatever we said. And so not only were we being countered by what the city was doing, there was an advocacy group that would delegitimize everything that we said. And so there, there's like continuously this sort of fake group that is presents itself as a community organization that um, then could, then the community is split. And so there's no point in doing what all of these people who are mobilized around the community who um, are a real grassroots community because the community is split. And so I really kind of worked to talk through how we, how we engaged with this organization and think through um, somewhat in regret what our strategy was, think that we did deal with them 
to a certain extent as a social movement organization and shouldn't have and should have much more publicly denounced <laughs> this group mm-hmm. and call them a sod organization. Um, so there's grassroots and there's this thing called astroturf groups, which are corporate fake groups, which they don't fit as, but I think that, so the sod group would be a group that, um, is somewhere in between that sort of represents the nonprofit, um, astroturf-esque kind of group. Mm -hmm. And then because of their involvement, we had, been, which I talk about in the next chapter, been really successful in the shelter campaign and um, had mobilized for a very long time to eventually win new shelter beds. And they did a backroom deal to um, undo that victory. And um, so I kind of unpack how that happens and what their involvement in that is and go through that in in that chapter as well as a bunch of a series of other vignettes that we were engaged in through that time period in that shelter campaign what we did and how the city responded with what what different kind of demobilization tactics they used. And in writing those smaller stories and what happened and what the city did, I, it was kind of surreal because I had lived it, but then writing it out was like always so angry at some of the stuff the city had pulled, but then mapping out um, how strategic they had been and how creative they had been in trying to suppress organizing, which is something that we don't really give credit of city bureaucrats enough for. Um, and the way that city bureaucrats would work on behalf of city politicians to um, suppress social movements was really key. So those are sort of the, the main chapters. And then um, I wrote that all. And then as I was writing it, I set out to write an afterward, which then became an additional chapter. And I had said that there were, um, that things had been never been worse. And then, then we come up to the pandemic and things obviously got so much worse and people went into the parks and set up encampments. And I had worked with folks on, on doing a, a lawsuit to try and stop the city from evicting encampments. So I talk through that lawsuit and some of the organizing around encampments. And the lawsuit um, was another sort of interesting kind of half victory where we never expect really justice from the courts. So we try to use the lawsuit as a, a new kind of tactical injection because we had exhausted all of the possible tactics that were working and um, as a way of holding off evictions. And it was successful up until the point that it wasn't. Um, Mm -hmm. So nearly, it was successful for maybe about nine months and then a series of just brutal violent evictions began taking place. That's about the book. That's really excellent, AJ. Thank you. Um, and I think it 
does such an excellent job of summarizing the experience of reading the book too, in the sense that um, I think many readers might come in and think that this is a fairly straightforward narrative, but what you get on the experience of reading is all of these different levels of government and their various bureaucratic apparatuses that houseless people are constantly having to contend with in various ways and the experience of organizing in an effort to make those uh, institutions actually work in a way that serves houseless people is just such a bewildering experience to read let alone to actually engage in that kind of organizing work so that summary really i think brings uh, to the front just how palpable the actual nexus of what you're researching and organizing around is. And one of the most striking ways in which you explain this in the text, these on-the-ground dynamics, is you write in each chapter through the language of social relations, which I think you highlighted in your your comment there. Uh, You make this true, though, of both the work that OCAP is doing in terms of you close the book with this really brilliant section on the social relations of struggle. But I think one of the vital contributions of the text from like an academic or social movement point of view too, is you insist on thinking through the ruling relations as you call them as also a set of social relations. Uh, Could you discuss the importance of this particular lens in both your organizing and your writing And in particular, what do you think that this approach offers that a more rigidly structuralist theory of political struggle might actually miss? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, So the idea of ruling relations comes out of the work of Dorothy Smith. And the methodology that I use is called political activist ethnography which is from the work of George Smith building off of Dorothy Smith. And there's no relation. Well, the relation is that he was her student, but they are not biologically related. And, um, and so what she offers with the idea of ruling relations that I think is really significant in terms of kind of moving past some of the limitations of structuralism is that um, she, a lot of people conceptualize like or reify things like oppression or capitalism and the idea of like the base and superstructure, I think really do that really problematically. And she moves beyond those things to talk about how things are coordinated by people and in institutional ethnography, which is Smith, Dorothy Smith, and political activist ethnography, um, that things are done by people is just really reinforced over and over, which is such a basic thing, um, but is also fundamentally life-changing once you mm-hmm. um, really put it into place. Like there are actually is no capitalist system mm-hmm. Um there's people that are doing capitalism. And so capitalism isn't a thing over there that you fight. It is the relations between people. And so Dorothy Smith calls that a a blob ontology. 
where people make these things into systems when they're people's relations. And when you think about it as people's relations, it actually becomes so much easier in some ways to think about undoing them um, because it's not some random Leviathan far away. Mm-hmm. It is some ways harder because it's all of these people <laughs> everywhere mm-hmm. enacting these things and so many more relations to undo. Mm-hmm. But um, so I, I think that this idea of ruling relations is also really key because it, it gets to um, the kind of core of the web, the interrelationship between bureaucracy, government, and, and corporate relations. And that gets lost. Those re- interrelations get lost a lot of the time with other kinds of frameworks. And with the St. James Park chapter, that becomes really evident how there's this business improvement association, their mandate is to work in the interest of business. And the city councilors staff are on the board of parts of it. And so are city bureaucrats. And they're not doing like city bureaucrats aren't doing things because they don't want to offend the the BIA and is like all so evident whose interests they're working in and they're all working in the interests of capitalism. Um, and they're, they're all clear, like they're all separate entities and also this very clear web. Um, and so I think that that, that framework has been, is, is a really useful framework and has, been so helpful for me in kind of shifting how I think about things. And um, Smith, uh, George Smith (laughs) offers this idea of a ruling regime um, where I, I sort of use that the ruling regime and ruling relations are sort of the same, but I use the ruling regime to, to talk about the city of Toronto the city of Toronto also isn't a, a thing. It's people doing the city. Um, mm-hmm. But I try and remind people of that while also sort of taking this shortcut of ruling regime or city because um, it's it becomes cumbersome to say that over and over and over. Right, um, right. Yeah, but uh, I, for me... I've started really like questioning my students or like pushing my students to move away from talking about systemic things and systems and, and worked to do that myself. And even little things like um, I came to these ideas when I was working on my second book, A Violent History of Benevolence. And in that book, my co-author and I had, were talking a lot about um, how ideas were circulated and there I was like they're not or discourses were circulated and they're they're not circulated um, as if in the ether people are circulating them mm-hmm. and so we did like a word search for every time mm-hmm. we used that phrase and turned it into an active phrase mm-hmm. instead of a passive one mm-hmm. um, to just n- not sort of reinforce these um, really kind of 
passive ideas that things are just happening without people doing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the idea of social relations of struggle comes from Gary Kinsman. And that too is really useful. And he brings in the idea of mapping the social relations of struggle and um, the social relations of struggle is like the entire terrain of struggle. And so it includes the activists and organizations involved in fighting back as well as ruling relations. And that mapping those social relations is, is so useful in understanding where the like opportunities and weaknesses and, and I think the term he uses is like possibilities for pushing through are. Mm -hmm. And for me in doing that has been really helpful in just sort of laying out and thinking, thinking through more strategically in how we can work more effectively and really specifically target and plan rather than kind of just like going. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it seems to me that one of the major upshots of this uh, lens or approach is rather than uh, a behemoth or an edifice that you're sort of hurling yourself against because the notion is of social relations, it actually brings to the fore not just the possibility but the reality of contradiction. And so like a thing that I really appreciated as little snippets that are throughout the text is some of the people who OCAP is relying on in its organizing and that you subsequently are engaged in your interviews are people who are employees of the city of mm-hmm. Toronto who are like shuffling information off the sides of desks effectively. And a really rigidly structuralist approach almost precludes that both at the level of organizing and of thinking about the problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. and. One of the things, so there's this book called Sociology for Changing the World, which right now is the only um, book about political activist ethnography, but there's another one coming out from um, Athabasca University Press next year, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that book, they talk about how um, this idea of like inside and outside is just such a false dichotomy Mm -hmm. and um, that we're all complicit and we're all inside. And, um, one of the things that I think is really key about that is like understanding that all of us are, are, are also well, very differently situated within ruling relations and definitely within social relations. Mm -hmm. And, um, we're not innocent within those relations. We're all complicit within them. And I think in terms of thinking through scholarship, but especially activism, then um, abandoning these notions of innocence is really important. Because if we um, think of ourselves as innocent, we're far less likely to be uh, actually meaningfully reflexive in the work that we're doing right and um understanding that we're complicit with it and a part of social relations you start from the beginning from the foundation Mm -hmm. of i'm not actually innocent 
within these. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it seems to be that it's uh, one of those classic category errors, right? That the point is to produce one's own innocence rather than and to put oneself outside of systems of oppression or domination rather than to actually abolish the systems of oppression or domination. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it reminds me also of a sort of uh, a pamphlet that was produced in the 1970s by a group of bureaucrats in the UK called In and Against the State, uh, mm-hmm. of which John Holloway was a, an author, I think, too. So it's this notion that I think has sort of fallen off as a consequence of the structuralist turn within uh, academic thought and also some forms of organizing. Yeah. But sort of following on that um, directly, I think one of the things that I found most rewarding in this text was uh, the extremely fluid and mobile portrait that you did provide uh, of such core elements of ruling relations as the civic bureaucracy of the city of Toronto. And we've already talked about this a little bit, like the capacity that it has to bend to accommodate uh, grassroots demands. Uh, even as you simultaneously hold really firm to the political principle that OCAP, uh, and you quote an interviewee saying this, is engaged in a class war. Uh, could you talk a little bit about both the organizing work and research work that you've done with OCAP and the additional research conducted for this book and what it's taught you about both the organs of class rule and the prospects of coalitional and radical struggle. Um, so it has taught me a lot. Like, I think one thing that's kind of key is that um, things are always in flux. And so I have some maps in the book showing, um, there's like, there's a few maps that kind of in each chapter, and then there's a kind of master map at the end that shows different groups that are engaged in coalition. And, um, there's these two sites of relief, um, the absence of really the larger organized left and of organized labor. And um, one of the things that is really significant if we're talking about class war is that um, people aren't fighting it, <laughs> uh, that the left isn't in it and that labor isn't in it. And particularly even people that like articulate those politics or, or maybe not on those terms, but articulate an anti-capitalist politic have profoundly abandoned, dispossessed people. Um, and that is, I think, fundamentally about aesthetics and about classism. And that like dehoused people are quote unquote difficult. Like there are which I talk about somewhat in the book, there are just like profoundly logistically difficult things about organizing with people who don't have homes. Um, it's really hard. And there's like about organizing with poor people in general, um, organizing with drug users, like there are really hard things. Um, but with folks who don't have homes, there's just like, how do you find people? 
And that was one of the things about the encampments that really changed the material conditions on the ground was that we, for the first time, had places where people were that we could find people and kind of build longer term relationships with communities of people. But um, there's this, um, like, dehoused people are part of the working class. I think, you know, some people hold to this lump and proletariat thing, which is, um, I think, profoundly, horrendously offensive. Um, But uh, there's this sort of general abandonment of folks and um, in the broader left, there's a really strong discourse around bottom-up organizing and who gets articulated as being at the bottom is is gerrymandered. I don't like, um, like the people that I see being articulated as being at the bottom consistently never include dehoused people. And, um, even though it's like, it's dehoused people who are at the bottom and dehoused people who like on identity lines are at the bottom, like profoundly disproportionately. And, um, so yeah, there's just this profound, like acceptance of the social abandonment that I, um, I, I don't understand aside from, um, aside from just like, this sort of discursive hatred, acceptance of this mm-hmm. hatred and, and abandonment and dispossession and hypocrisy. And mm-hmm. so that's happening in the left and that's happening in, in labor, um, but also like with the general retrenchment. So in these, in these maps, I have this relief where the left and labor aren't there. And it's particularly frustrating because you had asked what um, my book obscures and uh, because I tell these sort of narrative arcs, I can't capture the busyness of things. And so all of these things are happening at the same time. And at the same time, there's like organizing to raise social assistance rates. And there's also all these solidarity stuff that OCAP is doing. And um, we're also like going out to other people's stuff and other people aren't coming to our stuff and poverty is inherently intersectional, um, but other people don't necessarily see their work as being intersectional with poverty mm-hmm. and their work. They, yeah, they just are fine with like abandoning the poor people that are a part of their uh, movements and or communities. So that's just become like quite a long rant. Um, about the abandonment of of poor and dehoused people, but um, yeah, I think that that's the like the broader issues, and then things are continuously in flux. And so, in those maps, I have these organizations that were a part of the struggle, and those are gone. Like all of those groups, um, all of them had 
funding from had some level of like funding from the state, which I talk about the problems of getting state funding and how that leads to people being controlled, um, except for one group. And all of those groups have been demobilized politically and except for like maybe one, but the relationship is gone. Um, Mm -hmm. OCAP itself is not currently active politically. And um, the one group that didn't have state funding has, has been depoliticized. And so, um, social movements are constantly in flux. And I like, it's sometimes I'm like quite sad about it and quite nostalgic, but this is also the nature of struggle. And um, I, I think it's like Piven and Cloward talk about how organizations shouldn't exist, which I don't agree with, but um, that they, they, they change and they die. And if we are serious about um, struggle, we, we need to be flexible and we need Mm -hmm. to, um, we need to like continuously move and build. Yeah, well said. I I don't know that I have anything that immediately follows up on it other than we were talking before we started recording about the almost general strike um, in Ontario. And one of the profound points of disappointment for me was this clear mass energy that the education workers were able to harness. And then for a number of intersecting reasons, but one of them being that they were given a modest contract, were prepared to demobilize a type of labor movement that had already proven itself willing to step outside of the law. And therefore, in my mind, all of the social issues that labor constantly says the process of collective bargaining precludes us from going to that place should have been on the table. And it was particularly difficult to deal with when at the same time, like campaigns to raise ODSP and OW were actively at the, at Queens park, basically on the off days that the labor movement was not there. Right. So to see that kind of demobilization at a time when it was actually more was possible by joining these struggles together was a difficult pill to swallow, even though, as you're alluding to, it's one that we're constantly swallowing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, Switching gears a little bit, could you talk about OCAP's commitment to what you've already named uh, in your summary as direct action casework? Uh, And in particular, how does this method differ from dominant modes of social work And how does it enable you to write in a way that might be moving against the grain of dominant theories of anti-poverty work in such disciplines as sociology and social work? Yeah, so thank you. Direct action casework um, is an extra legal form of casework. Um, And instead of doing legal work where someone doesn't get their welfare check and comes and is like, help me, we'll, and we'll file an appeal. We would 
write a letter. And if that doesn't resolve it, then we would go to the office and shut down the office. Um, we would try and make sure that the people who were on welfare, who were trying to get their stuff done that day could still do that, but we would be very disruptive to the office and make it so that they couldn't do business as usual. And, um, it's through the power of disruption that like poor people really can get stuff done. Uh, that's like that, uh, Piven and Cloward really talk extensively about, um, the power of poor people being through disruption. And um, those actions are so powerful because they show other poor people that coming together and fighting back is possible and that it can secure immediate material results. Like we wouldn't leave until we had that person's check or promise of check. Sometimes it wouldn't be successful and we'd have to go back. Like with Laura Bardot's case, we had to fight for quite a while because we were going against this policy, we didn't even know what it was. Um, and so that is sort of direct action casework in a nutshell. Eventually, um, like sort of when I was early on in OCAP, they demobilized it largely by just implementing a policy to give, give OCAP what it wanted so that it wouldn't show up to the office. So it mm-hmm. wasn't doing a ton of actual direct actions um and uh it's i've already forgot the other part of your question oh about social work um so i think it's about like building power it's about working with individuals as equals um so in ocap 2 like you know i was one of the most consistent people doing direct action casework and I was on social assistance and and viewed people very much as my equals and I had I had to have people do my case before um and would be very much about like what do you want to do here's the plan um this is what we normally do kind of things very like consensual and um we'd encourage people to bring their friends and family with them, especially if they have kids, because kids are excellent at creating chaos. Right. Um, And that's a really different thing than these sort of individualized, mechanistic, legalistic approaches to social work, which are also very much um, about like in in a violent history of benevolence, uh, Chris Chapman and I talk about the the central ethic of social work being a healing power of domination and imagined moral superiority and that it's very much about the other person knowing what's best for the person that's being social worked. Mm-hmm. And I think that direct action casework lends a lot of possibility to social work. And we talk about those possibilities in a violent history of benevolence um, as being like creative ways of problem solving that are beyond and outside of the system. And one of the things about direct action casework is that it is, when it's done well, at least, um, anti-instrumentalist. And so it's, fundamentally about not 
having people be instrumentalized about having them be ends in and of themselves. This comes from Chris Dixon's discussion of OCAP's work. And um, I think that is a, a really important ethic to organizing in general and to direct action casework in specific that um, social work can also learn a lot from. I think that leads basically directly into my next question, which was around a major strength of your text is how open you are about the learning and writing process that you went through uh, in order to actually make this book. And just for listeners, uh, AJ's introduction stands out to me as a particularly powerful statement on research ethics as in like the how of writing and also on the question and the imperative of epistemic agency, the who uh, of knowledge production. AJ, could you discuss these branded braided elements uh, in your writing and your organizing? And in particular, because I suspect our audience is primarily academic, uh, could you talk about what it means to do organizing and research that actually takes poor people seriously as knowledge producers and political agents? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so I think that f- political activist ethnography begins from a couple really key places. One is from the standpoint of an activist in a group that ideally you already have ties in. And so for me, that was a a pretty um, ideal kind of methodology and and theoretical foundation. And then um, also that activists are actively producing theory ongoingly and actively doing research. And um, the the kinds of theory that activists produce is often either completely ignored or dismissed or downgraded as being like too on the ground. Um, But I think one of the things that I show is that's really not the case. And the ways Mm -hmm. that activists are producing knowledge and like making sense of the world is so interesting and useful and engaging and, and, um, necessary. And, um, and I came to it from that because I was coming out of it as that. And, um, there's, there's a big push towards community engaged research and, and I, um, I'm currently working on a grant with a group of folks here in Vancouver and it's a partnership. It's a SHRC partnership engaged grant. And it is, I am um, deeply offended by the grant because I have to structure it in such a way that it rips the heart and soul out of what community engaged research really means in order to make it legible to the grant people. Mm-hmm. And other folks who don't do what I consider to be real community engaged research can very easily make their work legible in that way. And I think that's one of the problems with community engaged research becoming trendy um, is that if you're not doing it well and you don't have real roots, it's quite easy to, um, to jump on that bandwagon. 
So I think there's like anyone can believe that they're approaching people with respect and as epistemic equals and um, that even if that's the case, coming from the standpoint of um, people in that community that you're not a part of is not the kind of research that is necessarily the kind that you should be doing. I, I did it that way because like, I think we should be producing knowledge about ruling relations in order to make change. And as someone who on a Tuesday is yelling at a city councilor on a Wednesday is going to have a great deal of difficulty interviewing those same people, which turns out I was shocked that I was able to interview a bunch of city councilors, but city staff wouldn't have it. Um, I, I wasn't, I wasn't able to interview any city staff, but, um, and it quite funnily literally yelled at council at an OCAP action and then went over and asked to interview one of them. And they agreed um, right then. <laughs> um, but so that's the kind of research that I could do because that's what is available to me. But people who have levels of respectability who want to support social change should use what's available to them and not like I wasn't researching OCAP. I was researching from OCAP's perspective to learn about ruling relations. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and I think that people who have different things available to them to learn about ruling relations should do that mm-hmm. at the same time, still, still value people as knowledge producers. And like one of the things that I knew I guess was that our our the knowledge that we held was more legitimate than the knowledge that the city had um, or or said was valid, and then was able to show that. Um, and uh, I don't know though if someone that was coming from outside of the community that had been saying that for so long would be able would have the same perspective because of these sort of fundamental um epistemic valuations that are put on people but um i think even just entering things as um understanding that people's lived experiences are like deeply epistemically valuable um and tell tell very real stories that aren't just anecdotal anomalies, but actually point to how systems really work. That's one of the key things about institutional ethnography is that there's a profound disjuncture between what ruling relations says the world is and how people experience it. And that's where research should start from. Mm -hmm. And so like, actually respecting how people say the world is, is where we start. Right. And I think um, another element of the way in which you write about this too, is you're also, because you're coming from a place of deep engagement with this community, uh, your writing doesn't sort of move into where I think some of that is you probably correctly identified like trendier notion of what community engagement means where you have an 
uncomplicated notion of what it means to do that as well. Like it's palpable in the writing that, um, as you alluded to earlier, it's really hard to do this kind of work actually, because the type of like political subjectivity that one encounters in community versus in the sanitized space of a seminar room is very different. Like you write uh, quite straightforwardly about having to contend with cis-heterosexism and all different types of things, but still at the same time recognizing the epistemic agency and validity that's brought to the table on a range of questions at the same time. Which is just a thing I appreciated about the book. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Unless you had anything else, AJ, uh, our final traditional question at the New Books Network is just to ask what you're working on now. uh, And that is expansive in terms of whatever you'd like to talk about, whether you have ongoing research, community projects, anything that you'd like to highlight, or if there's anything that we missed, uh, the floor is yours. Um, well, thank you. Uh, so I guess I'm, I'm working on doing research with folks here in Vancouver and looking at what we're calling the carceral housing assemblage. And I'm really excited to be working with folks here and kind of building off of what you were saying, um, like working at doing this kind of like ethical work with people that I don't have longstanding relationships with and, and building that in um, is a really different and really interesting kind of experience for me. Um, And I'm working on, uh, doing a second edition of Disability Politics and Theory, which is my first book. And it should be out in 2024. And I'm excited for that because it's been just over 10 years and Mm -hmm. um, a lot has changed. And I'm getting to do a lot of new reading and bring in some some ideas of things that I've uh, had for a long time that I finally get to incorporate back in and uh out of out of fight to win my activism has really changed because of what i learned writing the book and so i talk in the last chapter a bit about a project that i started um recognizing these epistemic problems that we face um really started and we started doing it in ocap too but going deep using freedom of information act requests to use the city's information against the city, recognizing that um, we just were losing, um, <laughs> trying to get our stories and especially de-host people's stories out there, um, that it, we just weren't winning and hadn't been winning for so long, but finding city data that could validate those stories or just simply challenge the city's own official Mm -hmm. positions would would be more effective Mm -hmm. so um i've been working on doing that with a group called impact information mobilization mobilization and public accountability collective of toronto um and i i put 
a bunch of the analysis that I do with that group on my, for now, Twitter, which is the AJ Withers. And um, we also have gotten a bunch of media articles based on our research. And that's been really, um, really interesting and uh, useful to sort of work on challenging the city's official narratives. That's fantastic. And thank you for doing all of that work. Um, Yeah. So AJ Withers, author of Fight to Win, Inside Poor People's Organizing, out now from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you so much for coming on to the New Books Network. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure.